Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Well, welcome. And on today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, I'm talking to Peter Edwards. And Peter is a renowned writer, historian and biographer who has published extensively on Australian and international history and politics. He is the official historian and general editor of the nine-volume Official History of Australia's Involvement in Southeast Asian Conflicts to 75. And Peter has been affiliated with numerous Australian and international universities, as well as working for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Australian War Memorial. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, Peter. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Uh, It's great to have you on our podcast. And today we are talking about Menzies government's Cold War military commitments from Korea to Vietnam and I would love to start our discussion by asking you how did Australia's strategic thinking change from World War II when Menzies was first Prime Minister 39 to 41 but but obviously World War II when Australia was significantly involved in those um, military uh, confrontations throughout uh, the region here and of course in Europe and the Middle East. How did it shift from post-World War II thinking to the Cold War? It was uh, a very interesting transition. Uh, I think what was happening was that uh, Australia, well for the, about the 10 years from 45 to 55, uh, firstly with the, the Chifley government with Menzies as leader of the opposition and then Menzies in power from December 49 onwards, was really uh, doing what governments do at the end of a long military conflict, uh, trying to learn the lessons from what had happened, uh, but also make their best assessments of what the world was going to look like for the next, uh, for the next generation or so. Uh, and to adjust its uh, strategy, uh, strategic policies uh, accordingly. Um, it was a slow process. I think uh, governments would find it uh, not easy to, to work out what was happening. Um, but what was particularly interesting, I think, was the complete focus on Southeast Asia. There was a quite a clear decision taken in the early 50s uh, not to get involved once again in the uh, in the Middle East Mediterranean theatre. Uh, and that wasn't an easy decision to take. Uh, the British, who were our principal ally, even after the ANZUS Treaty had been signed, uh, the British military and political authorities were putting a lot of pressure on to say that if there were a third world war against the Soviet Union, uh, and that was a very realistic uh, possibility up until at least the death of Stalin in 53, uh, that they wanted Australia once again to make a contribution uh, somewhere in the, in the Middle East area. And they referred, of course, to the importance of the Suez Canal in communications of the Arabian oil fields uh, and so forth. 
but it was the Menzies government that took a clear decision not to go that way. Uh, they had been so conscious from the Second World War of the uh, the possibility of a threat from the north, uh, from an expansionist Asian power, as Japan had been, of course, uh, and the fragility of Southeast Asia uh, in terms of giving any strategic depth to Australia uh, against such a threat. And so the it was the Menzies government that really said... Uh, no, we are going to focus entirely on Southeast Asia. Uh, for a time, they made a couple of very small commitments in the Middle East, uh, a couple of Air Force squadrons to Malta for a time, but then they pulled back entirely and said, no, we're only going to make any military intervention in Southeast Asia. Uh, and that was true uh, after the Korean War, uh, the three commitments that we made with to the Malayan emergency, the Indonesian confrontation of Malaysia, and, of course, the Vietnam War. So that, that was a, a very clear focus and not an easy decision to make, and especially, I suspect, for Menzies, who has, was such an empire man, of course, uh, and who had you know, been through uh, the war, seeing how uh, he knew how important... Uh, the support of powerful allies was. Yeah. So, what was the response from from Britain to to this change in posture f- from Australia? Well, they they reluctantly accepted it, um, uh, and of course, the many of the well, the two commitment and the next two commitments were alongside Britain. And in fact, we did not go to uh, go to war or anything uh, that could be called a war, other than alongside Britain, until the major commitment to Vietnam in 1965. Uh, we were uh, much more comfortable fighting alongside Britain. We worked well with them. Uh, their military structures and traditions uh, were akin to ours, of course, whereas. Uh, uh, the Americans often did things differently. Uh, and in both the Malayan emergency and confrontation, we were very comfortable with British tactics, uh, the low-level uh, conflict uh, tactics. The, uh, <clears throat> the, the British developed a, uh, a, a pamphlet on doctrine called uh, the Anti-Terrorist Operations Manual, I think it was, ATOM being the uh, acronym, uh, uh, but we were very comfortable with the way that British coordinated the military, political, civilian agencies uh, in a counterinsurgency uh, operation so that you tried to make the war smaller rather than bigger all the time, uh, which, was, um, yeah, which was very important. Uh, so it was, we worked comfortably with the British uh, and we got the uh, and the British accepted that this was what we were going to do, uh, and especially after fifty three, after the Korean War ended or reached an armistice, it's still technically not over. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but after the armistice in Korea and after the death of Stalin, the risk of a third world war against the Soviet Union uh, was appreciably less. And so it was easier for the British to accept then that uh, 
our contribution was going to be in Southeast Asia. And domestically, how was that received? Did, uh, did the Australian public support, by and large, that, that shift in focus to Australia's near north from, from having broader strategic outlook? I think so. Uh, I think very much so, because uh, Australia had, had a, a huge scare of, of fearing invasion in the Second World War. Now, we can, you know, people still argue as to whether there was a, a genuine threat of Japanese invasion, uh, but certainly it seemed uh, it seemed very real and Darwin, Darwin was bombed and so were many other uh, Australian uh, towns and cities on the north coast. So, you know, we, we felt it was uh, real. And, of course, the fall of Singapore and the internment of thousands of Australians in prisoner of war camps uh, throughout the war meant that uh, Australians were very conscious of, uh, of the importance of uh, what we now know as Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, of those, the islands and peninsulas of uh, maritime Southeast Asia. Uh, Australians were very conscious of how important uh, that was. So um, defending uh, us there uh, made a lot of sense. The other side of it was that... Uh, under the Menzies government, we were very cautious about uh, what commitments we made. Uh, and in fact, our allies uh, often said we were talking a good war, but, uh, um, you know, the, the, there weren't all that many troops on the ground. Uh, we tended to follow a policy which uh, became known as graduated response. The idea being that if there were, were a threat, uh, we would only make such a, a military contribution as was absolutely necessary. We wouldn't go in with all guns blazing uh, uh, and you know, uh, make maximum commitments, quite the opposite. Uh, for example, the Malayan emergency started in 1948 while Chifley was still in office, uh, but the Menzies government right from the start was pressed to, to make a commitment. Uh, it, we committed uh, Air Force elements and various other bits of equipment um, early on. But it wasn't until 1955 that, the, um, that we actually committed troops. <clears throat> and by that time, uh, much of the conflict was effectively over. Uh, we were involved in uh, what were often known as mopping up operations uh, for the rest of the 50s. But that commitment of troops in 55 played into the domestic politics of the day. That coincided with the great split in the Labour Party, mm. uh, the 54 election and then uh, the 55 election, um, uh, which split the Labour Party. Well, the sending of combat troops to Malaya was one of the crucial issues that divided the, uh, divided the Labour Party. In fact, I'm told that uh, for years afterwards you could see uh, the slogan, you know, graffiti saying, no troops to Malaya in railway cuttings around Melbourne and oh, really? so on. Yeah, it was, a, <laughs> a, a, uh, uh, it was quite an issue. But, uh, so that actually helped Menzies to split his opposition and, of course, that split helped uh, to keep the coalition in power until 1972 uh, but I don't think that it was a case of the political benefits coming from the policy, uh, not the other way round. Right, yes. So the, I think you've written previously that good policy 
feeds good politics, but mm. you have to sometimes take a little heat initially while mm. the good policy is accepted as as it as it is. I, I wanted to um, ask you about Peter this idea of the domino theory. So we're, we're in mm. the in the midst of the Cold War. There's concern that if one country in in Asia falls to communism, then others will follow <coughs> until it sort of feeds down to Australia and we're overtaken by communists. But but Menzies tempered that domino theory with a with an idea of, of forward defence, didn't he? It wasn't a, a sort of a sense of collective security, we're going out to um, you know, fight the communists from afar. We were very much focused on our near north and doing things with allies and, and doing, as you say, only only so much as was required. Yeah, th- th- well... The domino theory, um, uh, in as far as it, for a start, everybody believed in the domino theory. I mean, people had seen how the Nazis had uh, expanded their power in the 30s, and how the Soviet Union did in the uh, in the late 40s, uh, and and then again, there was it was understandable that people should fear that something like that might happen in uh, East and Southeast Asia. Uh, in the 50s, for example, um, partly because, well, there were two reasons why just about everybody believed in it initially, uh, both communists and non-communists, because the uh, the communists said every victory proves that they are on, you know, they are the wave of the future, and uh, you know, this uh, it's going to lead to another victory. And anti-communists uh, feared precisely the, <laughs> the same result. Yeah. And there were two reasons why there was some uh, good reason for it. One was uh, simply the psychology of it, uh, the, the momentum, uh, as people would say. Uh, but the other was uh, ba- more basic on the ground militarily. Mm. Uh, it, if you're conducting an insurgency in one country, uh, it helps enormously if a, a neighbouring country, uh, you, you can get supply lines uh, through that neighbouring country, or, or you can retreat to sanctuaries in that neighbouring country. I mean, the Vietnamese communists wouldn't have succeeded as far as they did in the, the 1950s had it not been that China had already become communist and therefore so uh, from over the border from northern Vietnam they could retreat into, into China. So the, the domino theory was fairly important, was, uh, was valid and everyone believed it, but it gradually became less um, uh, less powerful as countries established themselves uh, as the newly independent and initially very fragile uh, governments established themselves as they emerged from the colonial status um, so that they were able to to withstand the uh, you know, withstand the pressure of uh, of, of a neighbour going communist, um, and that's why there are some people who still say today um, that the Vietnam War served a purpose uh, because the effect of uh, the fall of Saigon in 1975. Uh, was very different from what it would have been if uh, Saigon had fallen in 1965, uh, which is almost certainly what would have happened if America and its allies hadn't in- intervened. Uh, the the fragility of uh, Thailand, Malaya, Singapore, 
uh, Indonesia, etc., uh, the, the regional ramifications would have been very different. We'll never know, you know what would have happened, uh, but there certainly would have been greater re- regional ramifications of one sort or another. Uh, and the question that uh, some people often ask, and it's a hypothetical, we can never know the answer is, but would the Indonesian generals... Uh, have stood up to uh, what seems to be an attempted communist coup in September, October 65, uh, in the way that they did, uh, had the America, uh, Americans and their allies not intervened in Vietnam in that earlier that year. I mean, 65 was such an extraordinarily turbulent year, and so that Southeast Asia looked totally different. Only a couple of years later, 67, 68, uh, you know, people could say, well, you know, what's this all about? Because Indonesia was so different. Malaysia and Singapore were much more stable, having separated in August 65. Uh, the whole region was looked quite different um, so soon after uh, the, the crucial time of 1964, 65. Yeah, it's fascinating to reflect on on hypotheticals and counterfactuals. <laughs> of course, as you say, we'll, we'll we'll never know. Why do you think it was then that Menzies government was involved in so many military activities during that fifties, sixties period? I mean, and and they and they're I think aside from Vietnam, they're not necessarily part of the national consciousness these days. I don't think people focus too much on, on what we did in Malaya and what we did in Indonesia. Um, mm. And, that, that, and that's, of course Korea as well. Mm. Yeah. That, that, that's one thing that, that, that strikes me um, uh, and I'm still not sure uh, what the, all the answers are because Malaya, the Malayan emergency and the and confrontation which were related but uh, separate um, uh, conflicts were really great strategic successes. Uh, we gained what we had set out to do. Uh, it was at a very low cost in terms of, of lives and treasure. Um, uh, and yet we, uh, and I think confrontation in particular was one of the greatest examples of Australian statecraft. And yet, as you say, it's hardly known, or you know, people hardly know, even people who think of themselves as quite well informed on uh, on Australia's military history uh, get them confused or don't know uh, what they're all about. And yet everybody knows about Vietnam and the way it worked out and, and I think there's been a certain amount of reflecting backwards as it were that people say, oh well Vietnam was a disaster therefore everything that led up to it must have been a disaster and anything that was associated with it uh, uh, like uh, domino theories or uh, the American alliance or uh, great and powerful friends uh, uh, or forward defense, you know, th- th- they must all have been fallacious uh, or, or, you know, e- equally, uh, equally wrong. Uh, I think we need a, a much more nuanced understanding of, of what actually happened. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why we got into Vietnam uh, was that... Uh, the government, and particularly Menzies himself, I think, saw Vietnam as being a uh, another example of what had worked in Malaya. 
that it was possible uh, for the Western countries to intervene in an area where uh, countries were emerging as independent nations from uh, uh, from the former Europe, uh, European empires and intervene in such a way that the new independent government would be uh, at either anti-communist or at least uh, broadly uh, sympathetic to uh, to the Western powers uh, and certainly not uh, communist, uh, that we could intervene that way. And uh, and there is documentary evidence that uh, uh, that when people started criticising uh, his Vietnam commitment or the possibility of one, he said, ah, yes, these are the same people who said the same thing about Malaya. Uh, and you know they got that wrong, so we'll we'll get it right this time. I think he underestimated the differences uh, between uh, Malaya, Malaysia, uh, on one hand, and and Vietnam, uh, the or, or the whole uh, Indochina. The Menzies, I think, was like many of the people in Australia uh, uh, at all levels, knew much more about maritime Southeast Asia mm. than about mainland Southeast Asia. Um, we knew about the former British and Dutch empires. They were closer. We uh, All sorts of connections there. We had very few connections uh, uh, on the mainland of Southeast Asia in the former French empire. Uh, we didn't have business contacts there. We... We didn't have diplomats in Hanoi or Beijing, so we didn't really have any access to, to their thinking. Uh, we had very little military uh, information, for example, or our independent military information uh, compared with what we did in Malaya uh, and uh, in maritime Southeast Asia generally. Uh, so I, I think there was, that was part of the reason why... Um, we got some things right and some things went badly wrong. It's interesting that we, um, we, we remember our, our failures, it seems, more than our successes. But then, it, but as you reflect on the, the Menzies thinking at the time, he felt he had learned enough from successes to, to embark in something more ambitious in, in Vietnam using the same decision-making techniques as he'd done in, in Malaya and, and Indonesia and the confrontation and, and that, as you say, we didn't have the, the understanding of the situation on the ground, the circumstances mm. were, were quite different and, and therefore the, the result was, was one of our, our bigger failures. Um, but in the consciousness of our nation, those those successes just—it's—it's <laughs> it's really bizarre. I mean, yeah. you, you can hardly say we're a, a nation that glorifies war when we, uh, as you say, we we remember and lament uh, our, our failures and pass over successes. Um, it may have something to do with the fact that there were so few casualties, uh, fortunately, in, in Malaya and confrontation and. Um, so we we sort of judge our uh, our military involvement by the the losses, and after sixty thousand dead in the first world war and forty thousand in the second world war, and we quite rightly pay tribute to the enormous sacrifice uh, that the, those generations made, uh, and yet we seem to sort of underestimate the uh, the fact that we actually had some very significant achievements. 
doing things with great skill and the military were, were skillful, the diplomats were skillful, the politicians were, were skillful, they coordinated their efforts and we got a good result with uh, at a very low cost uh, and we seem to forget it. It's, uh, it's really quite strange. It, it is. I, I guess we don't ever thank our leaders for averting disasters very much because the disasters averted so no one had to really experience it you think oh well you know that's that's fine but you know it might not have ever happened anyway so (laughs) Mm. (laughs) whereas a a disaster experienced is one that's quite open for for blaming whoever was in charge and of course if you have direct um, uh, experience of of loss from it as so many families did during Vietnam. Mm. You blame the leadership of, for poor decision making however much it might have been impossible to avoid. Peter, I was interested in your views and and this is this speaks to more of a cautious the earlier cautious approach that Australia took um, in the 50s to its military engagement. Why do you think Australia was so cautious? in its engagement in the Malaya emergency uh, as opposed to in the Korean War? What made the situations different in the minds of Menzies and the decision-makers at the time? Well, the Korean War erupted. uh, It was quite unexpected. Uh, Nobody um, had expected it. uh, And the the North suddenly uh, invaded the South. There'd been... Um, border conflicts going on there uh, of a minor nature uh, and then suddenly uh, an all-out uh, invasion uh, effectively uh, started uh, and it was simply uh, all hands to the pump um, and uh, so when uh, Australia happened to have some military in Japan quite nearby uh, as part of the British, co- uh, British Commonwealth Occupation Force uh, and they had various other assets that they could you know, transfer quickly. So it, it, it was, you know, we, we just had to um, uh, uh, gather up what we had uh, uh, and throw into it. The Malayan emergency had been developing quite slowly, and, and it had started while Chifley was uh, still in power. He, I think, saw Malaya as a, a bit like uh, Indonesia, and where he'd sympathised with the uh, the nationalist rebels. Uh, I think he was uh, a bit like um, we were saying about uh, Menzies on Malaya in Vietnam. I think uh, uh, Chifley got Indonesia right, uh, but he was uh, almost getting Malaya wrong uh, for, because he saw them in the same way. Uh, Menzies was very cautious about disentangling the two great historical processes which were entangled in Southeast Asia. One is the Cold War, uh, but the other is the decolonization of the, uh, the, the European empires. So there's uh, all these nationalist movements which suddenly, uh, w- w- which turn out to be far more powerful uh, after the war than they had been in the 20s and 30s. Uh, And so when the the British, the Dutch and the French uh, initially all thought they could just move back in 1945 to uh, to where they had been, uh, this was obviously not going to be the case. And it took quite some time and the the British, the Dutch and the French came around to to this uh, realisation in different ways and at different times. so 
Menzies had to be sure that what he was doing in Malaya, what the British were doing, uh, was effective in Cold War terms uh, and not putting Australia on the, the side of opposing uh, what they call genuine nationalism, that non-communist nationalism uh, at the same time. And uh, I think full credit should go to uh, the Menzies government for, for, for taking it cautiously and for trying to work out what was really going on. Uh, and they, they did understand that Malaya, because it had Malay, Chinese and Indian populations, was different from uh, some of the other uh, territories in the area. Um, they understood that you know, uh, most of the, the support for the communist uh, insurgents came from the Chinese community and only a certain section of the Chinese uh, community. So it could be uh, separated uh, off. Uh, and they were also uh, understood that uh, the British, after some initial missteps, uh, the British came to develop a good way of proceeding, of integrating CPM, uh, civil, uh, police and military operations, so that those different agencies and operations didn't get in the way of each other, which is so easy to do when you're uh, combating an insurgency. Um, so he was right to be cautious uh, and very early on for example uh, in soon after he'd come in and the, the, the British were putting pressure uh, on him to, to contribute uh, he sent a military mission uh, to investigate so that he would have his own uh, senior military people investigating what was going on on the ground and this wasn't just a token effort it was quite a large uh, mission including people who were being marked out for the, the top jobs in the military, uh, people who later, much later became chief of staff and uh, of the services. But, um, so he took that very seriously. Uh, and this is also the period when uh, our diplomatic service, uh, uh, you'll be glad to hear, uh, uh, was developing from a a pretty uh, low base, but uh, developing quite fast and developing a lot of expertise in Southeast Asia uh, uh, at this time. So we were getting reports back which explain what was actually going on uh, and getting a sense of, uh, of how things were going. Do you think, too, in the context of Korea, the fact that it was a multilateral effort, there were you know quite a few countries under the banner of the... United Nations who were going in together that that gave Australia some comfort to commit more than it would have in some of these other confrontations? This was a very important part of the whole strategy um, and I don't, uh, forward defence I think was based on a number of uh, principles which gradually evolved. So on the one hand uh, the Menzies government was saying we're we're only going to intervene in Southeast Asia. We're only going to do it if we can work alongside or uh, with the US, uh, which has the military power, and or Britain, uh, whose judgment and so on we trust, um, and preferably both. Uh, but we don't want to look as if this group of Anglo-Saxon white countries is trying to tell the Asians how they should uh, govern themselves. 
And so the the, the fact of a uh, of working in a multinational coalition, and preferably with some sort of um, um, multinational and to be blunt about it, multiracial uh, ethnic composition, uh, having endorsement from such an institution was enormously in, I- important. Mm. Now, as you say, Korea ha- was the had the top form of endorsement um, b- b- by having the United Nations. I mean. It was a strategic blunder on the, or a diplomatic blunder on the Soviet Union's part that they uh, uh, were boycotting the UN, and so this could be done as a UN uh, peacekeeping operation. And as you say, it was a coalition of, uh, from memory, I think 16 nations, and they came from all continents, uh, and so it was quite clearly not an act of American imperialism. Mm. It, it was a, a multinational uh, effort to. Uh, against one country, which uh, one aggressive aggressive country. Uh, Now, similarly, both uh, the emergency and confrontation had the the similar sort of endorsement of of the Commonwealth. They were Commonwealth exercises. Uh, They were supporting uh, Malayan, Malaysian governments in which Malay people were, were, were dominant, uh, and they also had um, partners uh, from other countries, I think Fiji and even an African uh, uh, regiment in one case. So it was made it less easy to uh, classify it as uh, neo-imperialism or something of that nature. Uh, I think Menzies hoped uh, and intended that uh, any involvement in Vietnam would be under the banner of CETO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. Uh, and he kept referring to that and kept saying that this was consistent with his, you know, with CETO commitments and so on. When it, the flaws in CETO, its weaknesses, uh, which were, were many, um, were becoming more and more evident. Um, but he, he kept trying to sort of cling to that to say that to, to show that this was not you know, a, an American exercise or American imperialism. Uh, it was a genuine multinational uh, collective uh, effort. Uh, but CETO was so much weaker than uh, either the UN or the Commonwealth uh, that that. Uh, that looked a, a bit flimsy. And that but but at the time, uh, it was certainly in the in the fifties. CETO was considered more important to Australia than than even ANZUS. At the it was mm. it was a um, something that you know would get mm. quite a, a big run in Australian media. The, the Australian public was was behind the concept of CETO, the the um, alliance. But but it. As you say, by the time we get to Vietnam, it's it's while Menzies is clinging to it, it's it's falling apart. Um, France is disengaged. Uh, mm. You know, doesn't want a part in the you know Indo-China mm. uh, conflict. And uh, and and while Menzies might have been claiming it was it, Australia's engagement in Vietnam was under the auspices of the commitments of CETO, that that clearly was was starting to yeah. become. Less of a, mm. <laughs> less of a consideration. Yeah, it, it was founded in in 1954, and it all came out of the Geneva Conference and the division of Vietnam uh, into South and North. And it looked as if it was going to uh, to be a good thing because it brought together some Southeast Asian countries, um, 
uh, w- with some uh, with the external powers. Uh, the trouble is those external powers were uh, were pretty half-hearted about it. Or mm. America was committed, um, and Australia and New Zealand uh, were therefore happy to go along with it. Uh, Britain joined up, uh, you know, became a member of CETO, but uh, the British government, even under a conservative government under Churchill and Eden, had decided that uh, the mainland, Vietnam and the, the, the neighbouring uh, parts, that, that was not for them. Uh, France, having been um, humiliated really at Dien Bien Phu, said, right, that's it, you know, uh, we've, uh, we've paid a heavy cost for the, uh, during the, the French Indochina War and you know, we're out of it. Um, so it was only the Thailand and the Philippines that were Southeast Asian members. Uh, so really, by the early 60s, um, CETO was in effect uh, a cover so that the th- uh, there could be an American-Thai alliance <laughs> Uh, w- well, while the Thais could say, oh, no, we're not just an American ally, uh, we're uh, acting with them in a collective uh, a- a- agreement. Uh, but it was only the, you know, the Americans and the Thais who were very keen, on it, uh, and Australia, uh, for those reasons. Um, but you're right, uh, initially, you know, Australia kept putting emphasis on it, and there were some people who genuinely believed in it, um, and one of the interesting uh, aspects of it is that um, in the 50s, the army worked out uh, fairly uh, at uh, some stage who were likely to be the chiefs of chiefs of general staff, what we now call chief of army, for, for several years ahead. Mm. And one of those people was uh, John Wilton, who in fact was... Uh, head of the army at the time the major commitment was made and then uh, promoted to the highest position, chairman of the chiefs of staff. Uh, and the last position he had before becoming chief of the army, which was you know, forecast long before, was to be head of the military planning office in Bangkok, CETO military planning office. So he... He and many people in the army, I think, you know, had this genuine belief that CETO was a, an effective military organisation. And Australians hoped that this would give them what they had always wanted. Uh, this was part of the, the thinking behind ANZUS and, and everything else since then. Getting access to high-level American military and strategic plans. Mm. Uh, but uh, so they thought that the the CETO military planning office would be an area where the Americans would say what they were planning, and you know we could fit in with that. Um, uh, but the Americans always keep their their planning pretty much themselves. The, right. Pen- the yeah. Pentagon is not keen to let even very close allies know too much about what they're thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, in its aspirations, uh, a good idea. But obviously. Uh, mm. Time moved on, and uh, key partners like Britain and France <laughs> moved out. Mm. Um, I wanted to um, touch on on Indonesia and Australia's relations with Indonesia. Um, 
it it was and and has really in, until probably the last twenty years been considered a, a threat to Australian security. How close during the confrontation did we actually get to a, an all-out war with Indonesia? Well, this is where I think uh, Australian statecraft was uh, w- was so clever. Indonesia was always at the front of Australian minds, and. We wouldn't have gone into Vietnam, I think, in the way that we did, had it not been for the fact that the America, we were concerned about confrontation and about the threat from Indonesia. Um, but when we asked the Americans at what point uh, might they become involved to support us uh, uh, under ANZUS, you know, if, if the Indonesians escalated the conflict, uh, the Americans, uh, in effect, said, well, that depends on how much support you give us uh, elsewhere. Uh, so th- I think I recall a- reading that um, John F. Kennedy said to Menzies, don't think that ANZA supplies for when it comes to confrontation. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> in rather stark terms. It was... There were some pretty blunt exchanges. And finally... Um, Garfield Bowick, uh, being a, a, a good lawyer, I think wanted a, a, you know, a document which might uh, uh, say what the commitment uh, was, and the commitment, uh, the piece of paper that finally emerged from that, uh, was notable for the limitations it put on. Uh, it said, you know, there'd be no troops on the ground, uh, there'd be a bit of di- diplomatic assistance, and. Uh, and the, you know, the pressure was really on the Australians not to, uh, you know, not to make matters worse because uh, Australia and the US approached Indonesia from entirely different uh, perspectives. Nobody knew what confrontation meant. Uh, when Malaysia was declared and uh, Sabandrio, the Indonesian foreign minister, said, uh, well, uh, we're... We're adopting a policy of confrontasi, uh, of confronting this. And it meant sort of low-level military engagements, you know, raids on military outposts and police stations uh, across the border. Uh, but always with the... Uh, and a lot of diplomatic uh, bluster and uh, Sukarno uh, uh, making fiery speeches at every opportunity. Um, and also talking about how close his relations were with China, uh, and he declared that 1965 would be the year of living dangerously. So, um, you know, nobody knew what that meant, and he talked about the Jakarta-Beijing axis uh, at a time when the Communist Party in Indonesia was not in power but sort of supporting him, and the Communist Party in Indonesia was the third largest in the world, the only two larger ones being the Soviet Union and China, yeah, the, the two big communist powers. So the fear that Sukarno, uh, the, uh, the communists, might actually take over uh, or that Sukarno would you know, give way to that instead of balancing the Communist Party with the army, which was anti-communist, um, you know, the, the fear was very real uh, and so confrontation you know, uh, continued at this very low level, but uh, it did look as if um, he was going to escalate it. And it, it was those sort of tactics, a mixture of military action and diplomatic uh, pressure and, and a certain amount of bluff, 
which had gained Sukarno uh, success in getting West New Guinea, uh, which had been held over when the rest of Indonesia became uh, independent uh, with American support. So uh, it's often forgotten that... um, you know, we introduced conscription uh, at the end of 1964 and that was partly because it looked as if uh, Indonesia might escalate uh, confrontation. It might even uh, uh, tackle Australia in the sense that we had a land border at that time between West New Guinea and we, uh, Australia was administering East New Guinea, what is today's Papua New Guinea. Uh, as well as any commitment uh, uh, in South Vietnam. But the first battalion, the first combat troops that we committed to Southeast Asia after the introduction of conscription, but before any conscripts had been trained and were were ready to go, uh, was to to confrontation. Mm. And it was only a couple of months later that we sent another battalion uh, to Vietnam. And at that time, we only had about three battalions. So, you know, uh, the, the, the pressure was obvious. You can't sustain that sort of commitment uh, uh, without growing the army very considerably. No, indeed. Um, I wanted to finish our discussion today, Peter, by asking you what are the lessons we can take from these Southeast Asian military commitments from Korea, mm-hmm. Malaya emergency, confrontation, and then, of course, Vietnam? I think we work much better when, uh, when government decisions are taken as a whole-of-government uh, decision. Uh, I think much too oft- far too often uh, they're seen as defence decisions and uh, only the military perspective uh, matters. Uh, the, coral- the coordination between defence and diplomacy, or military and diplomacy, uh, was very effective. And when we coordinated uh, governments effectively, uh, that was when we had, had more success. Uh, I think the decision-making that led to Vietnam uh, was not uh, of the same order as the decision-making that led to, to confrontation. Uh, that's one element uh, uh, of it. Um, and I also think that we've, we ought to think about, uh, when we think about uh, defending the rules-based international order, uh, we might also think that uh, we should uh, concentrate on the, the areas uh, we know best. You know, yeah. Just because uh, uh, the Suez Canal or Mediterranean is important in, in world politics doesn't necessarily mean that we need to, uh, to, uh, to go there. Uh, every time. Uh, I think right now we should be focusing a lot on Southeast Asia and the South Pacific mm. uh, and that may be the, uh, the best way we can contribute uh, to the stability uh, and strength of the, the rules-based international order. Well, uh, a very salient note to end on given the announcement overnight of the formalisation of a security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. I'm sure over over the next few weeks and months ahead and possibly years, we will reflect on how it came to pass under you know, mm. 
a, a period when Australia is supposedly deeply engaged in the South Pacific and we've had our Pacific step up and mm. and the like, um, how how that came to pass when we would consider Australia to be such a strong partner on so many aspects of life with the Solomon Islands, um, particularly their security issues mm. that they've had in the past through through Ramsey and the like, it's very important to reflect on what we can do into mm. the future to make sure that we are the security partner of choice for our friends in the South Pacific, for our friends mm. across Southeast Asia, that we are a trading partner of choice, uh, uh, a partner of choice when it comes to um, cultural exchanges uh, and also to, to values and, and respect for a rules-based international order. So thank you very much, Peter Edwards, for joining me on the Afternoon Light podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion and uh, I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk to me today. A pleasure, Georgina. Enjoyed it too. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.